Well, brethren, as we come to this second lecture in this unit of our studies together, let's once again seek the face of God and entreat him to give us his promised aid as we together seek to engage our minds with his truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are indeed grateful for the privilege that is once more ours as your children to call upon you as our Heavenly Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has made us your adopted sons, given us the Spirit of your Son, enabling us to cry, Abba, Father. And so we come to you as the Father who delights to give good gifts to your children, And we pray that you would give us in this hour the good gift of the Spirit's presence, enlightening our minds through the Word, inclining our affections to embrace that Word with joy, superintending our wills that we may determine to be obedient to that Word. We trust you, our Father, to meet with us, to bless us, to strengthen us that we may give ourselves in the concentration of our whole redeemed humanity to the things that are before us. Hear us and help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, brethren, having established in the previous hour the essence of the task of shepherding, overseeing, leading, taking care of, and governing the people of God, we come in this hour to address the all-important issue of the disposition with which we are to carry out this task. And as we move into this area of biblical revelation, there are three introductory concerns that I wish to set before you. And the first concern is to set out a definition of what I mean by the use of the word disposition. The formal definition of the word is, quote, the normal or prevailing aspect of a man's nature and the essential quality of that nature. Let me illustrate. When you and I speak of a certain brother as having a cheerful disposition or having a sullen disposition, we all know exactly what we mean by the use of the word disposition. We're obviously addressing the normal or prevailing aspect of a man's nature. Hence, as we take up this subject, we will be dealing with those internal attitudes and perspectives which, by the operation of the Holy Spirit and conscious spiritual disciplines ought to become for us the normal and prevailing aspects of who and what we are as Christ under shepherds fulfilling our pastoral duties. The second thing I wish to do is to give an explanation of my selective principles in terms of the specific dispositional issues that I will both identify and seek to expound and apply. Among the many graces and character traits which ought to be present 
in an effective pastoral ministry, what standard or principles of selection have governed my thinking in choosing these particular eight things that I will be highlighting in your hearing? Well, first of all, I answer by saying I've chosen to take our Lord Jesus Christ as the supreme and perfect pattern for our dispositional complex and the Apostle Paul as a second model or pattern for us. And I've taken this approach for the following reasons. First of all, because of Christ's specific identity as the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd and overseer or bishop of our souls. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 4, in that section where Peter is charging the elders, he reminds them that in all of their labors as shepherds, they have a great shepherd to whom they are to look both for strength and as a model of the disposition of their labors. In verse 4 of 1 Peter 5, we read, And when the chief shepherd shall be manifested, Hebrews 13, 20, he is called the great shepherd of the sheep. In John 10, 11, he is called the good shepherd. And in 1 Peter 2, 25, he is called the bishop, the overseer of our souls. And in the light of 1 John 2, 6 and 1 Peter 2, 21, he that says he abides in him ought to walk even as he walked, not in the general pattern of his life alone, but walk as he walked as the great shepherd, as the chief shepherd, as the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. And again, Peter, writing to abused slaves, says that they are not to retaliate in the presence of unreasonable masters. When they do well and suffer for it, they're to take it patiently, because, he says, hereunto were you called to follow his steps. So that I have chosen to take Christ as the perfect exemplar of what a true shepherd ought to be in terms of the dispositional complex by which he carries out his manifold tasks. John Owen has a marvelous quote right in this very area. I quote him now, Unto the call of any person unto this office of a pastor in the church, there are certain qualifications previously required in him, disposing and making him fit for that office. And if we would know what these qualifications and endowments are for the substance of them, we may learn them in their great example and pattern, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Our Lord Jesus Christ being the Good shepherd, whose the sheep are, the shepherd and bishop of our souls, the chief shepherd, did design in the undertaking and exercise of his pastoral office 
to give a type and example unto all those who are to be called unto the same office under him, and if there be not a conformity unto him herein, no man can assure his own conscience or the church of God that he is or can be lawfully called unto this office. So for Owen, following the pattern of Christ in our shepherding is not optional. Owen is asserting without it, we have no biblical grounds to occupy and to function in that office. So I take Christ as our example on the basis of these many texts, but then secondly, because of the explicit command to follow the Apostle Paul and those who with him follow and imitate the Lord Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, the Apostle writes as follows, I beseech you therefore, be imitators of me. For this cause I have sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, who shall put you in remembrance of my ways which are in Christ, even as I teach everywhere in the church. And without any taint of self-serving and pride, the apostle could say, be followers or imitators of me. And he repeats that injunction in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. Be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 9, we have this injunction given to us by the apostle. Not because we have not the right, but to make ourselves an example unto you that you should imitate us. And then in his charge to the Ephesian elders... He says, in all things I have left you an example. Here he's charging these elders with their task. And he says, as you fulfill it, keep me in your eye. In everything I have left you an example. I have set the pattern of what a Christ-like shepherd looks like. Well, having given the definition by way of introduction, having explained why I have chosen this framework of selectivity, my third introductory comment is a confession of frustration and fear. And my brother, if you never feel frustration and fear in preaching and teaching others, I envy you. No, I don't envy you. I don't envy you. In one point, I do envy you, but I don't envy you. It's impossible to be exhaustive in dealing with the subject of the disposition that must characterize the task of oversight and yet do justice to all the material that I yet must cover in this particular unit. Furthermore, I've had to be selective, and I'm fearful that I may have been arbitrary or prejudicially inclined to select the things that I have selected and to leave unselected things that perhaps should have been selected. Whenever you're doing any kind of topical assessment of God's truth, that's always a possibility. So in the light of these things, I want to exhort you. 
I want to urge you to be constantly on the lookout in your own reading of the Word of God and related literature. Look for aspects of the dispositional complex of a true shepherd seen in our Lord Jesus, seen in the Apostle Paul, seen in other shepherding models set forth in the Scriptures. And when you see them, and they're not included in my list, pray them in. Ask God the Holy Spirit to cultivate them in you and seek by the grace of God to have a more comprehensive biblical dispositional complex than the one that I have set before you. Well, having introduced our subject, let's now look at the prevailing disposition of the overseer that is patterned after the Lord Jesus. Now we begin to take up what eventually will be eight elements of the disposition that ought to characterize the manner in which we carry on our labors. Number one, and when you first hear the words, you may say, wait a minute, those two words don't belong together. But by the time I'm done, I hope you'll agree that they do indeed belong together. It's what I'm calling a disposition of assertive servanthood. Assertive servanthood. Let's go back to our five-fold family of words that describe the essence of the task. Can a shepherd be a shepherd who's not assertive? When he sees a wolf, takes his staff, and is determined aggressively and proactively to beat his head in, and knock his teeth off or bang him on the rump and shoo him away from the flock? Of course not. If he's not assertive to find those hills where there is lush green grass for the sheep to graze upon, he must be assertive to be a shepherd. He can't be a passive reactor who only moves and acts when he's acted upon. Take all the other word families. Taking care of. Think of that Samaritan. He was assertive in responding to that mug traveler's needs. Taking care of the house of God. Assertiveness must mark us in terms of our disposition. But it's assertive servanthood. From the posture and disposition of one who recognizes recognizes in all of my assertiveness, I am asserting the role of a servant for Christ's sake. Now let's look at that disposition as manifested in our Lord Jesus Christ. We start with Luke 6, 46 and 47. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 and 47. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Everyone that comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you to whom he is like, and he gives that familiar parable. Our Lord Jesus was conscious that he was in the position of being Lord, of being master over his people, 
that his word was to regulate their lives and their conduct. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, for I am that, and yet you're not doing what I say. I've chosen this text to emphasize that our Lord Jesus was fully conscious of his position as Lord. Take the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Going therefore, make disciples, baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Our Lord was conscious of his unique place as the arbiter of right and wrong, of duty among those who claim attachment to him. And he mandates a teaching ministry that has as its goal not just exposition, but exposition, application leading to implementation of all things whatsoever he has commanded. And then in John 13 and verse 13, we find this element again of our Lord's consciousness of his position of authority and leadership and headship over his people. John chapter 13 and verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. I am conscious, I relate to you in the posture of teacher and of Lord. So it is clear from these three passages that our Lord was indeed intelligently conscious of his position as the leader and the governor of his people. He had voluntarily assumed the weighty role of being the chief and the good shepherd of his people. However, Without in any way modifying or relinquishing that position or his consciousness of the stewardship of that position, he deliberately and consciously took the place and assumed the disposition of a servant to his people. He was not only the servant of Jehovah, he made himself the servant of men. And this fact is nowhere more explicitly addressed in the gospel records than it is in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28. Matthew chapter 20, a pivotal passage for every one of us who is in any place of leadership in Christ's church. Matthew 20 and verse 25. Here, our Lord speaking, and he says... You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Not so shall it be among you. But whoever would become great among you shall be your minister or servant, and whoever would be first among you shall be your bondslave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. 
Our Lord identifies the known leadership style in the disposition which obtains among men of the world. The two Greek words by which he describes their leadership style are katakurieo, to lord it down upon another, and katex usiadzo, which means to play the tyrant, is the rendering Reinecker and Rogers give. Among the worldly leaders, they're conscious of their position. They delight to make it known that they are conscious of that position. And they lord it over others. They play the tyrant. But then our Lord says, this manner of leadership shall not be among you. Not so shall it be among you. Rather, he says, in my kingdom... You will be leaders, but you will be leaders functioning by a radically different set of principles and a disposition antithetical to that of the rulers of this world. Not so. This is what they do. This is what marks their leadership style, their dispositional complex as they lead. Kata kurieo and katexusiadzo. That's what marks them. Not so among you. Not so among you. And then our Lord introduces two key words in order to identify the kind of leadership that must characterize those whom Christ appoints as leaders and in whose heart Christ governs the disposition that dictates the style of their leadership. And the two words are diakonos, a table server, and doulos, a bond slave. Those are the two words he uses. And so he says, would you be first then you must be bond slave. Would you be great? You must be deacon. You must be servant. In some settings, these two words are close to being used as synonyms, but not in this setting. According to our Lord's words, you move from being great to being first when you move from being servant to being slave. The way up is the way down. That's what our Lord is teaching And then as the capstone upon the passage, our Lord cites his own example, even as. What's all this mean in concrete expressions? Look at me. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, diakoneo, but to serve, to deacon, and to give himself a ransom for many. In a recently published book by Dr. Donald Carson called Scandalous, it's a marvelous book. I highly recommend it. He has a most perceptive comment about this passage. I quote him. What he means, rather, is something like this, what Jesus means. The kings and rulers and presidents of this fallen world order, of this world order, exercise their authority out of a deep sense of self-promotion, out of a deep sense of wanting to be number one, out of a deep sense of self-preservation, even out of a deep sense of entitlement. By contrast, Jesus exercises his authority in such a way as to seek the good of his subjects 
And that takes him finally to the cross. He did not come to be served as if that were an end in itself. Even in his sovereign mission, he comes to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Those who exercise any authority at any level in the kingdom in which Jesus is king must serve the same way. Not with implicit demands of self-promotion, confidence in their own right to rule, or a desire to sit at Jesus' right hand or his left hand, but with a passion to serve. And what our Lord makes explicit in that Matthew 20 passage, he illustrates beautifully in the John 13, 1-17 passage. In this wonderful, acted-out parable of truth with two pivots, two focal points, Jesus girds himself with the towel, takes the posture, the position, the form of the common house servant who waited at the door with the towel and basin, knelt at your feet and washed your feet. The towel was there, the basin was there, but no servant was there. Now one of the disciples voluntarily taking the place of the servant, and you can just imagine how the redness must have crept up their necks and into their ears and flushed their faces when all of a sudden there's a little bit of noise and the Lord gets up from reclining at table, lays aside his outer garment, puts on the servant's towel and begins to kneel before them with the basin. What's he doing? Doing two things. He's giving a parable of redemptive grace. If I wash you not, you have no part with me. I have to wash you. If you're ever to go to heaven, you've got to let me be your servant to wash you from the filth of your sin. But then he says, what I've done, I've done as an example that you should do to one another as I have done to you. Not redeem one another, that's not your work, that's mine. I alone can bring the cleansing to eternal life. But as I have washed your feet, i.e., as I have been assertive to serve you in the role of a slave, be assertive to serve one another in the role of a slave. Assertive servanthood. Am I beginning to win you to my side with the conjunction of those two words? Beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus. And I believe in 1 Peter 5, 5, after Peter gives that charge to the elders concerning their task and their dispositional complex, notice what he says as a capstone in verse 5. Likewise, you younger, be subject to the elder, yea, all of you, Gird yourselves with humility to serve one another. Be men of the towel and of the basin, taking the posture and the disposition of the servant. According to Ephesians 5.23, Christ is head of the church in order to be its savior. He is the head to save. Himself, 
the head and savior of the body. A beautiful conjunction again. He doesn't relinquish his authority in saving, but he saves in the way of serving. To accomplish his saving mission, he had to empty himself, taking the form of a servant. I'll never forget the first time I heard the words from a preacher expounding the Philippians 2, 5 and following passage. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And he said, this is subtraction by addition. Emptied, taking. Emptied, taking the form of a servant and being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then you'll want to add this text because it was subsequent to the final proofing of the notes that I was struck afresh with this passage and I've incorporated into my lecture. This is amazing because his assertive servanthood did not stop with the cross. It continues according to Ephesians 5. He nourishes and cherishes his church. And it's going to go on in one of the most amazing statements to me in all of the Bible. Luke chapter 12, 35 to 37. Luke chapter 12, 35 to 37. My wife and I are going through Luke in our devotions. And I came across this a few days ago. And I said, I've got to incorporate that into the lecture. Listen to this amazing statement. Luke chapter 12 and verse 35. Let your loins be girded about and your lamps be burning. And be yourselves like unto men looking for their Lord when he shall return from the marriage feast, that when he comes and knocks, they may straightway open unto him. It's an appeal for living in the readiness of the master's return. But now when he returns, what will happen? Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, finds watching Verily I say unto you, he shall gird himself and make them sit down to meet and shall come and serve them. You say, wait a minute, that can't be. But that's what it says. And there's no textual variance. When he comes as the sovereign Lord, ushering in the consummate kingdom of grace and power. He's going to be an assertive servant who's going to serve all his faithful servants. What does that mean? I don't know, but I know what it says, that he shall gird himself. Is it an allusion to the John 13 teaching? The one who girded himself with the towel in the days of his humiliation will carry on his ongoing redemptive grace in the posture, not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb in the midst of the throne, sharing the throne with his father, but he's going to stoop and serve his servants. That's the passage. Assertive. Servanthood. He that says he abides in him ought to walk even as he walked. But then quickly, 
Let's consider this assertive servanthood as manifested in the Apostle Paul and others like him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, the Apostle says, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves your bondservants for Christ Jesus' sakes. We don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ as Lord, and we take the posture of the bondservant. Assertive servanthood, assertive in going after Jew and Gentile, assertive walking through opposition, stoning, beatings, shipwreck, day and night in the deep, aggressively preaching the gospel through the Roman Empire, and yet always with the posture of a bond slave to men in their need for Jesus' sake. Conscious that he was an apostle, he began the letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God conscious of the peculiar authority. He could say to the Corinthians in his first letter, he says, let anyone who seems to be spiritual or thinks himself a prophet acknowledge the things that I say unto you are the entole, the commandments of the Lord. He was fully conscious of his place of authority, designated an apostle by Jesus Christ, and yet he says, fully conscious of that, I take the place of a bond slave for Jesus' sake. And then his well-known words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so often abused and bent and twisted to justify incorporating nonsense from a debased culture into the worship of God. I could scream at times when this text is used to justify such God-dishonoring nonsense When we are told that when Paul says that I become all things to all men that I may gain some, that justifies any kind of this nonsense with a view to, quote, winning people immersed in nonsense, which in itself is nonsense upon nonsense. But 1 Corinthians 9.19, Though I was free from all men, I brought myself under bondage to all that I might gain the more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. I didn't particularly like nothing but kosher diet and all the things that go with that yoke that our fathers could not bear. But if it meant I could get some ears, I was ready to deny myself as a servant of men for their salvation. To them that are under the laws, under the law, not being myself, etc. All of this, to the end, that as servant he might win as many as possible to his Savior. And then Second Corinthians 10, 8 and following, another example of this disposition, 1 Peter 5, 3, Philippians 2, 20, 21, describing Epaphroditus, Epaphras, and I think that's Epaphras, let me check, just my memory, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 20 and 21. I have no man like-minded, here he's speaking of Timothy, who will care naturally for your state, for they all seek their own, not the things of Christ 
Jesus. And then Epaphroditus is then mentioned as another utterly selfless man who lived to serve others. Now, brethren, remember, remember that I'm addressing this matter not primarily in conjunction with our preaching pastoral duties, but our shepherding, governing, guiding, leading, taking care of the church duties. Our non-pulpit aspects of pastoral labor must be marked by this assertive servanthood. If you and I are to be faithful in those relatively unknown and behind-the-scenes labors for the peace, for the purity, for the progress of your people in grace, this aspect of assertive servanthood is absolutely necessary. Furthermore, if you are to bear with the arrogant and the chronically dissatisfied members, and you will have them, their conduct is not such to warrant putting them out of the church as having insufficient evidence of grace. When that happens, they're to be disciplined out of the church. But there will be those weak and crotchety, chronically, periodically irritating, arrogant, dissatisfied members. Well, while you seek to do them good, while at any given point they may seek to do you harm, without this disposition toward them, you're going to say enough is enough. And when you start reading then some of those injunctions about bearing patiently with the weak and the ignorant, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him unto his will. If we're to be faithful in dealing with those kinds of people in our assemblies, it is absolutely vital that we have this disposition of assertive servanthood that continues to seek to see Christ formed in them. The temptation will be to back off and say, leave them to their misery. But we can't do that. If we are charged to shepherd the sheep, not just the healthy sheep, but the sick sheep, the lame sheep, the sheep infested with vermin, we've got to shepherd the sheep. Shepherd the flock. We've got to take care of the house of God. Not just the neat, tidy, obedient children, but some that have a little bit of the brat yet in them. We've got to take care of the house of God and all of the members within that house. Well, let me then touch in the second place on the second element in this dispositional complex of the work of oversight in government, and it's what I'm describing, a disposition of meekness with the attendance of lowliness and gentleness. I commend to you a careful word study of the various family of words found in the New Testament that are translated meekness, gentleness, lowliness. And it's not the easiest thing in the world because 
the significance of those words in the original and then their English translations. There seems to be so much overlapping interpenetration. There seems to be a tendency to use some of them as synonyms. But when you've studied those words, you do come away with an overall impression of the of the impact of this dimension that I've tried, perhaps imperfectly, but the moment of truth comes when I have to put something on the paper. It's a disposition of meekness with the attendance of lowliness and gentleness. And the first and perhaps the most pivotal text pointing us in that direction is Matthew chapter 11. If our Lord Jesus is our great pattern of shepherding, Listen to him when he speaks of himself. You know, as you read the gospel records, our Lord was very sparse in making references to his own internal disposition of mind and heart. But here in this strategic passage, he lets us into his own inner life as he is inviting burdened sinners to come to him for rest. That's the significance of where it appears. He's trying to give reasons to sinners to come to him for rest. And this is what he says. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and following. At that season, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and understanding and didst reveal them unto babes. Yes, Father, For so it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been delivered unto me of my Father, and no one knows the Son save the Father, neither does any know the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal him. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for. It's as though someone says, yes, Lord, but if I take your yoke upon me, will that not be oppressive and overbearing and galling and irritating? No, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for. I am meek and lowly of heart and you shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. For the yoke to be anything other than easy in the burden of light, he would have to be something other than the Savior that he was, something other than meek and lowly of heart. He would be using his position where he says, all things are delivered unto me of the Father to oppress those who come under his yoke. But he said, under my yoke, there is perfect liberty. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we see that these qualities are joined here, that he says, I am meek and lowly in heart. Meekness is joined in a similar context to lowliness on the one hand and gentleness on the other. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. Here the apostle is pleading with the Ephesians to pursue with diligence their unity, and he writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called with all lowliness 
and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And then the Second Timothy 2, 24, uh, 26 passage that I quoted just a bit ago, the servant of the Lord must not be argumentative and combative, but gentle to all in meekness, instructing others. And then 2 Corinthians 10, 11, where Paul says, I beseech you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Meekness and gentleness again joined. So what do we say then in conclusion to this exhortation to seek to model our ministry after the great shepherd, a ministry that in its disposition will be marked by meekness with the attendance of lowliness and gentleness. This is what I'm prepared to say at this point. Meekness is the disposition characterized by an absence of carnal self-assertiveness, that kind of assertiveness which issues in self-will and ill-will. And the texts that I've listed, I think, help us to validate that perspective. Meekness is the disposition characterized by an absence of carnal self-assertiveness, that kind of assertiveness that always issues in self-will and ill-will. Then lowliness is the absence of arrogance and pride of mind. And the primary word translated lowliness was a character trait despised by the pagan world of the first century. But in the New Testament, it is a word which underscores the grace of humility. And again, I've listed the text for you that validate that assertion. And gentleness is the absence of harshness and insensitivity. Harshness and insensitivity should not be named among the servants of Christ. By application, brother, remember again, we're addressing the matter of our disposition with primary reference to the work of shepherding and oversight of the people of God. It's in this dimension of our pastoral labors that we must learn how to manifest these particular graces. And here I want to quote these texts, Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Obviously, the apostle felt that it would be possible for someone to say, yes, my brother's been overtaken in a trespass. He shouldn't be in the trespass. He ought to get out of the trespass. I'm going to nail him. No, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11, as the apostle continues to give guidance to his Choice, son in the faith, Timothy, thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, 
meekness. Meekness. Follow after that character trait. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. So without diluting any of the biblical concepts of rule, oversight, government, shepherding, this disposition of assertive servanthood renders our labors a continual diaconal service, and when it is suffused with this disposition of meekness and gentleness and lowliness, it becomes a wonderful mirror of the disposition of the chief shepherd so that the sheep that he's purchased with his own blood will not only see their true and chief shepherd in the Scriptures, but they may see at least some semblance of resemblance between him in perfection and the under-shepherd who rules and governs in his name and by his authority. And then thirdly, and this will be the last for this lecture, I would set before you that if we are indeed to have a disposition in the work of oversight in government that is pleasing to God and like Christ, it must be a disposition of vulnerable compassion, or if you prefer, compassionate vulnerability. This is one of the areas where the gospel writers give us repeated insight into the governing disposition of our Lord Jesus. Although he was very conscious that his miracles were the validation of his identity as Messiah. He was very conscious of that. Remember when John's disciples come say, are you the Messiah? Or do we look for another? He says, go back and tell John what you see. The lame walk. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel. These things I do to validate who I am. God's Son, His Messiah. However, it is equally clear from the biblical record that when He saw human need and responded, the major factor of His response at the moment was not a step back and saying, oh, yeah, I'm son of God, I'm Messiah, I must validate my identity. Uh, what was your need, sir? Oh, what was your... No, no. The scripture again and again brings into the closest conjunction what our Lord was thinking and feeling when he acted in merciful power to heal the sick, to raise the dead. It was not his consciousness, I must validate my identity as Messiah. no. There was compassionate vulnerability. He was moved with compassion and said, I will be thou made clean. He sees that poor widow woman accompanying that pallet that held her dead son. And it says, move with compassion. He sees the multitude who followed him for two or three days to hang on his words. It's getting near evening. They had nothing to eat. And it says, move with compassion. He said to the disciples, what have you got? Give them to eat. 
I have compassion on the multitude. They have been with me these days and they are hungry. Send them in the villages. They'll faint on the way. Why does the Spirit of God highlight that the primary intellectual, emotional state of our Lord was not that of validating messianic identity? It was his bowels, his inner viscera moved in the sight of human need. And I've listed some of the well-known passages. Matthew 9, he saw the multitudes was moved with compassion. He saw the leper in the synagogue. He was moved with compassion. And what was true in the experience of our Lord was also true of his servant, the Apostle Paul. And by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, it must be true of us as under-shepherds. That's why Paul could say in Acts 20.31, again from the charge to the elders at Ephesus, Wherefore watch, as you watch, remember me, remembering that by the space of three years I ceased not to admonish Everyone, night and day, with tears. And they didn't nudge one another and say, with tears? Uh, Titus, do, do you? No, no. What about you, Erastus? Do you? No. With tears. And one can imagine what came up into the minds of those Ephesian elders. Yes, Paul, there are times when your tears splashed on us as we listen to you admonishing. Vulnerable. There's something in us that does not welcome the pain of genuine caring for others. We are self-protective by nature. At least I know I am. And I think maybe you have the same struggle. It's cost to have an open heart. It costs to be vulnerable to letting ourselves feel human need and respond accordingly. So I love that passage in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 13. Here these Corinthians had been such a pain in the neck to Paul in so many ways, but he won't give up on them. And in this marvelous peroration where Paul just, as it were, rips into his chest and tears it open and pulls his heart out and plunks it on the table, says, look at it, it's bloody and it's beating and it's beating for you, Corinthians. Listen to the language. Our mouth is open to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is enlarged. You are not constrained in us. But you are constrained in your own affections. Now for a recompense in like kind, I speak to my children. Be ye also enlarged. Corinthians, you've been stabbing me. You've been sticking it to me. You've been denigrating me. You've been abusing me. But Corinthians, I'm not putting a piece of plate steel over my heart. It's still open. 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 May God help us. And then 2 Corinthians 7, 2 and 3. Open your hearts to us. We wrong no man. 
We corrupted no man. We took advantage of no man. I say it not to condemn you, for I've said before, listen to this, remember who he's writing to. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's a man marked by vulnerable compassion or compassionate vulnerability. And my brothers, if you and I are to deal with battered, bruised, twisted men and women, there's absolutely no place for clinical objectivity and detached professionalism in your dealings with them. Absolutely no place because the hurts and the pains of God's people will become your hurts and your pains You will be tempted to make an effort to protect yourself by developing a callus on your soul. And you must resist that temptation with all of your spiritual vigor. If any of God's people are called upon to obey Romans 12, 15, you and I are called to this attitude and action above all others. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who Who rejoice? When you're in a weeping mood and some guy's in a shouting happy mood, it can irritate you. Say, it ain't fair. He should be so shouting happy and I'm so down in the pits. God says, I don't care if you're down in the pits. Open your heart up and enter into the joy of your brother. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And there are times you may be shouting happy and your brother's weeping. You say, man, I need a nice shouting happy time. God says, your weeping brother's next to you. Open your heart and enter into his grief and weep with him. That's not natural to us, brethren. But that's what God calls us to. And that's what we see beautifully illustrated in our blessed Lord and in his servant, the Apostle Paul. And may God grant to some great measure that will be formed and worked in us by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And I close the lecture then by, again, my patron saint, a good old doctor of Oxford, John Owen. A compassionate suffering with all the members of the church in all their trials and troubles, whether internal or external, belongs unto them in the discharge of their office, nor is there anything that renders them more like unto Jesus Christ, whom to represent unto the church is their principal duty. Your principal duty to the church and mine is accurately to represent Jesus Christ. And nothing renders us more like unto Jesus Christ than compassionate suffering with the people of God. The view and consideration by faith of the glory of God, of uh, glory of Christ in his compassion with his suffering members is the principal spring of consolation unto the church in all of its distresses. And the same spirit the same mind herein ought, according to their measure, to be in all that have the pastoral office committed unto them. So the apostle expresses it in himself. You see, Owen is 
tracking with me or I'm with him. In Christ, in the apostle. Now notice what he says. Who is weak and I am not weak. Who is offended and I burn not. And unless this compassion and goodness do run through the discharge of their whole office, men cannot be said to be evangelical shepherds, nor the sheep said in any sense to be their own. For those who pretend unto the pastoral office to live, it may be, in wealth and pleasure, regardless of the sufferings and temptations of their flock, or of the poor in it, or related unto such churches as wherein it is impossible that they should so much as be acquainted with the state of the greatest part of them, is not answerable to the institution of their office, nor to the design of Christ therein. May God help us, my brothers, constantly to gaze upon our compassionate, vulnerable Savior, willing to be moved by human need, to stare it straight in the eyeballs and allow the reality of it to sink into our spirits that we too may be moved with compassion. Well, God willing, we'll take up the remaining five elements. These have been the foundational and in many ways Not quite the most central when I consider what I yet have to say, but God willing, we should be able to complete that in the first lecture in the morning. Let's pray. Our Father, when we behold our Savior, we feel so dirty and unclean in our hardness and insensitivity to human need. Our self-protection, O God, forgive us. Cleanse and wash us afresh in the blood of your dear Son. Grant us a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is love. Work in us, we pray, that willingness to be vulnerable. Work in us that capacity to feel and to feel deeply for your people for sinners, for men in their manifold needs, and then equip us to know how best to respond to those needs to the praise of your grace. Hear then our prayers. Dismiss us with your blessing. Grant each man here a good night of rest. Bring us to the new day, eager to seek you, eager to gather again, And once more, to give ourselves to hearing your word, we plead in Jesus' name. Amen.